rough being a woman having to know all these things about the way you write. Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are talking about Jeannie Wiley. And uh, where'd you do your research on this one, Katie? This one I watched. There was a TLC documentary and just various websites. This is a pretty well-known story, so. I've never heard of it. Anyone who's in, like, psychology, developmental fields, anything like that, linguists. Teachers. Yeah, pretty much everyone knows this story. If you've taken any sort of, I guess, developmental course. And uh, where's this one located? This is in Temple City, California. And this was recommended by a listener? Yes, this was recommended by Wendy. Well, thank you for the recommendation, Wendy. I'm sure if you sent in your address, we're going to send you out a sticker. I offered. She said she already has one. We already sent her a sticker, and she's too good for two. Yeah, I see how it is. Send her another one anyway, Katie. Guess what, Wendy? You're getting two. (laughs) Yeah, you're getting spammed. Thanks again, Wendy. Katie, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Stories of feral children, those who were raised with little or no human contact, have existed since as early as the 1300s. It wasn't until the 20th century when child development and the nature versus nurture debate began to seriously delve into exactly how the environment can affect a child's development that we began to study these feral children. Feral children as in wild children, right? Untrained? Uncivilized? I mean, they have little to no human contact, so they don't have any language capabilities. They don't follow social context. They don't win Oscars. I don't know how else to describe them besides feral. Some people might not understand. They might just equate it to an alley cat. It's not the same. I think people know that cats and people are different, but if you didn't, there's your fact for the day. Feral children are not cats. They're still humans. They are, in fact, people. Just no Even human contact. Even if they contact. can't tell you that. Mm-hmm. Although they don't occur often, there are a surprising number of these feral children documented, many raised by different animals. Monkeys, dogs, wolves, sheep, and even bears. This is where a lot of our Disney movies come from. Well, one in particular, but that was also from a book by a man named Rudyard Kipling. He was a notorious racist. Oh. And uh, the Disney version of Jungle Book is not the same as the actual story of Jungle Book. Oh. But still good. I read about Ricky Ticky Tavi. Most, if not all, of these feral children were either abandoned by their parents at a young age or ran away from home to escape extreme abuse or neglect. Some took on the characteristics of the animals they were raised by, such as Oksana Malaya, who lived with dogs from ages 3 to 8. When she was discovered, she was unable to speak besides yes and no, walked on all fours, and barked and growled like a dog. Fortunately, intense rehabilitation and the fact that she was not completely isolated from human contact allowed Oksana to learn to speak and behave normally, although she was intellectually impaired. I mean, what type of impairments generally come with uh, feralness? I don't know specifically. I would imagine stuff like... Drinking. This is. I'm not making a joke. I swear to God, stuff like uh, drinking from a glass instead of like lapping table manners. Yeah. Yeah. Table manners. Yeah. It's pretty much socially, and then, I mean, if you don't start learning things and being educated at a young age, you're obviously going to be 
set back, basically. But I don't know. I'm not a developmental psychologist. I don't know exactly what goes on. It's like you got to spark the fire of learning. Yeah, they just, it's not like it, it's five years they can catch up. They just don't develop certain. Yeah, and especially language. So it depend. it kind of depends on when they are separated from human contact because really essential years of your life are from birth to like three years old, especially for language development. So because immediately, pretty much immediately as after you're born, you start learning how to speak and how to understand language. So when you miss that critical period, your brain doesn't make those connections and you completely lose the ability to ever learn how to speak really. Hmm. So it does stunt your brain growth. In cases where children were abandoned very early, usually under three years old, rehabilitation is rarely possible. Although the children can learn to behave somewhat normally, they are never able to learn to speak. The majority of our language comprehension occurs from birth to two years old, when we start to comprehend the basics of whatever our native language is. Much of this language comprehension is taught to us by our parents and those around us, and studies have shown that attempting to teach a child language through television or radio actually does little to no good in teaching them. They're not like plants, where you can just put on your favorite classical music and they grow well? No, not at all. Would that cause you to have a feral child? Treating it Treating like a plant? Treating it like a plant. Yeah, giving it Mozart. And only Mozart. And a steady, steady diet of sun. You know, I have this weird, like semi-nightmare happening in my head right now of a child that's only listened to music and so every time it opens its mouth it makes like <laughs> violin creatures. That is an interesting fear. <laughs> when these feral children are abandoned during vital years of language learning, the prospect of them ever learning to speak is usually non-existent. There are some cases of children who are abandoned later in life that did regain the ability, but in almost all cases of feral children, some form of intellectual disability is guaranteed. Many behaviorists, linguists, and psychologists wanted to study feral children and their development, but were unable to do so. Because Dis you can't just lock up a... Yeah, because that's a crime. <laughs> it's called child abuse. Child abuse. But let's just say someone was to do that in the name of science. And okay. <laughs> after they got arrested, would they still not... Would they not use his science? No. First guy to win a Nobel Prize from prison? I don't think he'd win the Nobel Prize, but... Just saying. We're not going to take child abuses, scientifically factual information. What if you... I mean, they did it during the Holocaust. I wouldn't... Uh, yeah, that should definitely be our baseline for things that we're going to do or not do. They did it during the Holocaust, so it's fine. No, I mean... I'm going to do it I mean, we've already, we've already painted that picture. It's already there. It's already finished. We took all the information that we gained from the Japanese and the Germans... And we use that information to our own advantage and our own developments in medical sciences. But this wouldn't really benefit us. It would benefit the, the psychologists that want to study these things. Despite many 20th century psychologists' questionable ethics and their experiments, they fortunately wouldn't take things as far as isolating a child from human contact their entire life to study them, although I'm sure many wanted to. Psychologist Winthrop Kellogg was fascinated by feral children, so he designed a study based on the opposite. What would happen if you brought an animal into the home and raised it as a human? Kellogg and his wife adopted a baby chimpanzee and raised it alongside their infant son, Donald. 
For a few months, things went well, and the chimp was actually developing more quickly than Donald. The experiment had to be prematurely ended when Donald actually began acting as a feral child, copying the sounds of the chimp, which slowed his language development. That makes uh, the last four years in America make a lot more sense. <laughs> Wasn't the outcome he was looking for, but it's still a pretty cool, studyable outcome. Hey, Humans you want to slow up your child? <laughs> give, give it a chimp sister. I mean, I don't know exactly what he was expecting because we've known for a very long time that chimpanzees cannot talk. Like, there's no chance of them ever learning how to speak like a human. But they can't outperform a child of the same age. No, they just bring them down to their level. I mean, they're not. The thing with them developing more quickly is they don't, one, they need to do so because they're wild, and two, they're not developing as much as we do, so... Yeah, because I think chimps still uh, age in dog years. Although many of the early studies of feral children have been questioned if they are real, one of the most n- well-known cases is that of Jeannie Wiley. Oh, that's, the, that's what this episode's about. To understand Jeannie's story, we first must discuss her parents, specifically her father, Clark Wiley. Sounds like a supervillain, like a really bad 40s supervillain. As I mentioned previously, most feral children are either abandoned or severely abused by their parents. And that is exactly what happened to Jeannie. Clark Wiley grew up in foster homes where he was teased constantly during his childhood, as his birth name was Pearl. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's a great name. That's a family name. It's a strong name. It's his mom's name. It's a woman's name. (laughs) I don't want to be sexist here, but Pearl is a woman's name. This is like a boy named Sue here. They were trying to give him a little edge in life. My best guess, I don't know for sure, but I assume that they wanted a girl <laughs> and then didn't get what they wanted, but they stuck with the name. During World War II, he became an aircraft mechanic in Los Angeles, California. He met and married Irene Oglesby in 1944, and the two began their lives together. When did he change his name to Clark? Um, pretty early. It was his middle name. He was Pearl Clark Wiley, so he just dropped the Pearl. Clark was extremely controlling and hated any sort of noise, especially that of children. Despite not wanting any of their own, Clark and Irene's first child, a daughter, was born June 2, 1948. The infant died two months later on August 19, 1948, after Clark wrapped her in a blanket and left her in the cold garage because she was crying. Semi-reasonable thing to do. Their second child was born September 15, 1949, and died two days later due to quote-unquote birth complications, although most believe Clark was involved in the child's death. He didn't take two months for that one. No. I heard some sources said that he had an RH incompatibility, so I don't know. A what? RH incompatibility, which is something to do with your blood and your mother's blood and... The baby did? Yeah. Oh, and then the bloods don't mix? Basically, yeah. And there's like an immune response in it. It's a whole thing. I'm not going to explain it. But yeah, so that supposedly is what led to the child's death or complications of that. But I don't know. He already killed one baby, so I assume that he probably didn't mind killing another. Yeah, I mean, he just wanted to not wait two months this time. He figured he'd just get it out of the way at the hospital. He gave it, he gave it poisoned blood. He got rid of it like the sneakiest way possible. Their third child, John, was born March 11th, 1952, and alive to survive. That was nice of them. Yeah. At the age of four, John was taken to live with his paternal grandmother, Pearl. Pearl Sr. (laughs) Who believed that Clark and Irene were unfit parents. 
Two years after moving in with Pearl, when John was only six, he watched as an out-of-control truck spun and hit Pearl, killing her. That is a rough thing for a six-year-old to see. Clark's aggression grew tenfold after his mother's untimely death. By this point, he and Irene had an infant daughter, Jeannie Wiley, who was born on August 8, 1957. How come he didn't name her Pearl III? Well, okay, so someone's going to give me shit about this, and I know they are. Jeannie is not her name. This was the name that she was given to keep her identity safe when they were doing the study, but this is what everyone knows her as, but her real name is Susan. But she wasn't Pearl III. No, she was not. She was Susan. But yeah, so I refer to her as Jeannie just because that's what she's always referred to as, really, and... After Pearl's death, John moved back in with his parents and baby sister, and Clark moved the family to Pearl's two-bedroom house in Temple City, California. Clark blamed John for his mother's death as she was taking the child for ice cream when she was hit and killed. For this, John was severely beaten and abused. That sucks. That's a terrible thing to tell a child. He described how his father would sit in the living room chair with a gun on his lap and beat him with a piece of wood. Irene also faced abuse from Clark and was therefore terrified of him. She was also almost completely blind, so she was forced to rely on Clark for much of her daily living. Why was she blind? She had glaucoma, I believe, so she had cataracts. Well, all she needed was a little bit of that medical marijuana. Clears that glaucoma right up. So I've heard. Could you imagine how many old people would still be around if they were just taking weed? A lot. Yeah. You'd have less people with cancer. Do you think that people die from glaucoma? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but their their obvious lifespan shortens dramatically. When yeah, a lot of people see. trip and fall at that point. Yeah, like when your main enemy is gravity, it's probably pretty important to be able to see clearly. I think when your glaucoma is so bad to the point that you're almost completely blind, I don't think just starting smoking weed is going to like fix it. Oh, yeah, it does. You never know until you try. After moving into Pearl's home, Clark forced the family to sleep in the living room, him in a recliner, Irene at the kitchen table, and John on the floor. One bedroom was kept as a shrine to his mother, and the other is where Jeannie was kept. So this shrine to his mother, was it like an untouched, un... Like, what did he, what did he do for his shrine to his mother? They didn't specify, but I assume it was kind of like an Ed Gein type of thing, where it, as soon skin. as she died, he just closed it, not skin. <laughs> he just belts. closed the door and never went back in there and left it exactly how she left it before she died. Up to this point, Jeannie was relatively well cared for. Although she was born small, she developed mostly normally. At three months old, it was discovered she had a congenital hip dislocation, so she had to wear a brace. This led Clark to believe that she was intellectually disabled, and he began to ignore the child completely. When she became sick at 11 months old, her pediatrician told Clark and Irene that there was a possibility that she was disabled, furthering Clark's hatred for her. Clark's kind of a prick. Yeah, what, what would cause someone not to have the, like, nurture feeling towards their child just because, is that a normal thing? To not love your child? No. To not love your child because you think it's uh, intellectually disabled? I think he just wanted a reason to not like his child. He just didn't like kids. He hated children. He hated noise. He hated Irene. This was probably one of the most miserable humans that have ever been created. If you hate children that much and you know the consequences of fucking, then uh, someone should, like, you know, do a little bit of contraceptive work there. 
He just didn't care. He just planned to just kill the kids. I mean, this was the 50s, so they weren't yeah. like The Catholic totally... Church still had the idea that they wanted to further the populace and for centuries have been preaching about not using contraception. So most other churches also did the same thing because the reason for sex is procreation. Once Clark's mother died, his hatred for Jeannie only grew worse. John was forbidden to speak to Jeannie, and Irene was not allowed to care for the child. During the day, Clark strapped her to a potty chair and diapers so she was unable to move. He made her wear a harness that was extremely similar to a straitjacket. At night, if he remembered to take her off the chair, she was tightly wrapped in a sleeping bag and placed into a crib covered in a metal screen so she could not escape. Like a cocoon. Basically. What the fuck? So they already kind of treated her like a wild animal. Yes. Jeannie was not allowed to talk to or make any sort of noise. If she did, Clark would either beat her with a wooden plank or bark and growl at her like a dog. He also grew his fingernails out to be able to scratch her. If he suspected she was making noise or doing something inside her room, he would stand at the door and bark at her. If he believed she continued, he would enter the room and beat her. Just go do something else. Anything else, right? Like, why... I don't understand why you'd want to just be so fucking mean to the kid. Oh, I don't like kids. Okay, well, go do something else and let your wife take care of the kid. Why do you got to fucking... Yeah, what was this dude's issue? I don't know. I don't know enough about him to make any sort of guess besides that he was just a horrible human being. Some people are just like this. Clark hated noise so much that no one in the home was allowed to speak. If they did, especially around Jeannie, they would be viciously beaten. Because of this, Jeannie learned absolutely no language her entire life besides a few negative phrases, such as no more and stop that. Clark claims that he fed Jeannie three times a day, but her severe, mal- but her severe malnutrition says otherwise. Apparently, he would only give her liquids, baby food, and cereal. Because she was strapped into the chair in the straitjacket, either Clark or their son John would feed Jeannie. They did so extremely quickly and would rub the food over her face if she choked or could not swallow quickly enough. Irene was allowed to be in the room while Jeannie ate, but was not allowed to interact with the child at all. She says that around 11 every night, she would sneak into the room and feed Jeannie without Clark's knowledge. That's gnarly. This is probably one of the worst cases of abuse ever. Unnecessary, and for no, like, obviously all abuse is unnecessary, but this is just, like, so random and nasty. The room was kept completely dark most days, although the curtains sometimes would be cracked, allowing Jeannie to see a small portion of the sky. She had almost no furniture besides the potty chair and crib, and was occasionally given plastic food container or spools of thread to play with. After her rescue, Jeannie would masturbate during socially inappropriate times, causing her caretakers to question if Clark had sexually abused Jeannie or forced John to. As John grew older, Clark forced him to be the one to abuse Jeannie and threatened him if he told anyone about her. John was only permitted to go to school and home and was not allowed to speak while at the house. Both he and Irene faced constant violence from Clark, but both were too scared of the consequences if they were to seek help. So John already had, he already knew how to talk and everything when Mm -hmm. all this happened, so then he would go to school and he could keep doing his learning and whatnot? Yeah, so he was, I mean, raised... He was abused, but he was raised relatively normally, especially the three years that he spent with his grandma Pearl before she died. Right. So his critical period of learning was relatively normal. Clark was so controlling that no one was allowed to enter their home, and he kept a shotgun either with him or by the front door in case anyone ever tried stopping by. 
Clark also told Irene that he didn't believe Jeannie would survive to be 12, but if she did, Irene could leave and take her to safety. Of course, when Jeannie did survive to 12, Clark revoked his offer and continued to threaten Irene if she tried to escape. Did Irene try to escape at any point? A year and a half later, Irene and Clark got into a massive argument that ended with Irene taking Jeannie and leaving the home. She stayed with her parents for around three weeks, then decided to apply for disability for her blindness. When she and Jeannie went to the social services building on November 4, 1970, Irene accidentally entered the wrong room. The social services worker met with them, assuming that Jeannie was six or seven and possibly autistic. During the conversation, it was revealed that Jeannie was actually 13 and police were immediately contacted. Irene was arrested, along with Clark, and Jeannie was taken to a children's hospital. Once removed from her parents, she officially became a ward of the state, only leading to more problems in her life. I don't know if you could get worse abuse though, right? Is it better to go from worst abuse in the world to just moderate abuse in a foster home? I think it's worse because you expect your government to take care of you or to take care of children, and probably 90% of the time they don't. Right. I don't know. I just feel like for her, the only thing she had known was this little horrible room and getting beat and food stuffed in her face and tied to a chair and just all this bullshit and then you go somewhere else it would probably be pretty shitty but no matter what is at the next place it's got to be better than there's some especially i mean not in the 70s really but like around this time there were some mental institutions that were pretty much exactly what Jeannie experienced Jeannie's case became national news on november 17th capturing the attention of psychologists and especially linguists from across the world as she was being treated at the hospital, her parents were preparing to face child abuse charges. On November 20th, the day before he was to appear in court, Clark shot himself to death. Oh, shit. He just finally took the way out that he needed, right? <laughs> yeah, he probably should have shot himself, like, 30 years ago. Yeah, he that was a long time coming. He was pretty pretty miserable fuck. Mm -hmm. Good, all right. Irene was able to plead her case to the court, explaining that the severe abuse and near-blindness left her helpless. Charges against her were eventually dropped, and she was able to take part in Jeannie's care, although she never fully regained her rights. It's kind of sad for her, I think. Is she? She's got to be part of the victim in this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she was a victim of Clark as well. They all were. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of sad for her, but maybe she should have shot Clark. What's John doing in all of this? I'm not entirely sure, ex like, right after all of this happened, what he did. I think he went and stayed with friends and family and then pretty much completely distanced himself from the family. He saw them once in the 80s and never again. And then he died in 2011. Initial examinations of Jeannie revealed that she weighed only 59 pounds at almost 5 feet tall. She had two full sets of teeth, a congenital deformity, a distended abdomen, and an undersized rib cage. Because she had spent most of her life in a straight jacket, she was unable to fully extend her limbs or stand up straight. Although her vision seemed unaffected, she was only able to see 10 feet in front of her, the size of the room she'd spent her entire life in. Although difficult to test her mental abilities, doctors were able to determine that she functioned at the level of a 13-month-old child. She was extremely interested in objects and sounds, and was often attracted to new people, approaching them and walking with them. 
Despite this, her personality characteristics were extremely antisocial, and she formed no emotional bonds with anyone, including her mother. Because she'd never been taught any form of personal hygiene, she was incontinent, constantly salivated and spat, and would blow her nose into whatever was nearby. Did she have any issues walking? Like, she, she was able to walk okay? or She walked okay. She just walked in, like, a weird... She wouldn't stand all the way straight. She was not able to stand up straight, and she would walk with, like, her hands in front of her, like a rabbit, kind of. Oh, but, okay. And she kind of shuffled. She had, like, a strange gait, but she was able to walk, yes. Jeannie was able to understand emotions and expressions of others, which is considered by most an innate ability, something you're born able to do that requires no actual practice. At this point, in 1970, there were also theories that language is an innate ability. This is what attracted so many linguists to Jeannie's case, as she had zero language abilities. She could not speak and made noise by pushing chairs or other objects. That was all just because he, Clark never let anyone talk to her, right? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty much dead silent. I think she heard a word or two, but even in the home, when they had to have a conversation, they would go to a different room and whisper. So she never heard anything. Because even if you just never really interact with a baby, I think if it sat in the room with people talking... It would still, yeah. I mean, because a good portion of learning language and learning how to speak is listening and understanding when you're an infant to a year old when you start to speak. Gotcha. She also had an extremely small understanding of speech from those around her, only able to discern between her name and about 15 other phrases. Although she was interested in sounds, she did not respond to any speech besides those 15 phrases. Tess concluded that she was not selectively mute. Her lack of speech or any form of verbalization was due to her life of complete isolation. Jeannie was also unable to control her emotions and would often fly into fits where she would attack herself. During these attacks, she would show no emotion and make no noise. So she just like silently claw herself or hit herself or... Something along the lines of probably what Clark did to her. Jeannie's doctor at the Children's Hospital, James Kent, was involved in her case from day one. He wanted her to form an emotional bond with another person, but realized this was unlikely with how many specialists she met with on a daily basis. To combat this, he attended every meeting with her and spent a majority of his time working with her. After the first month, she began showing excitement when someone, like Kent, came to visit her and would make attempts to get them to stay. Her nonverbal communication skills rapidly improved and she began paying attention when someone spoke to her. She also began hoarding items she liked, but also began destroying her toys when she was done playing with them. In December 1970, Kent reached out to the National Institute of Mental Health to form a team to complete a case study on Jeannie. By 1971, multiple psychologists had joined the team and began testing Jeannie. What did they determine or what did they think she was doing with the destroying of the toys when she was done? I'm not really sure. I think it was probably a way to punish herself because she's not used to ever having anything that belonged to her. Because so. all she really knew at this point was how to be abused. And so generally she continued that abuse on herself because she thought that was the only appropriate way to behave. She reminds me of Daphne. By February of 1971, Jeannie's mental age had increased from a 13-month-old to a 2- to 3-year-old level. By April, she was functioning at a 4-year-old level. Around this time, she also began to speak, categorizing objects at a higher mental level than tests showed she was functioning. In May of 1971, Jeannie was removed from the hospital by her teacher, Jean Butler. 
Butler would take Jeannie out on day trips and became extremely attached to her. After one of these outings, Butler claimed that she had been exposed to rubella, a highly contagious disease. Jeannie's doctors were reluctant to let her leave, but assumed that placing her in an isolation ward would be more harmful to her development. Jeannie moved into Butler's home, who eventually filed for custody. During the custody dispute, Butler began limiting visits from Jeannie's team of doctors and psychologists, claiming they were too taxing on her. One member of the team recalls Butler saying that she hoped Jeannie would make her famous, and it was determined that she only petitioned for custody of Jeannie to gain some sort of notoriety. After the state declined Butler's petition, Jeannie was moved into the home of her therapist, David Riggler, and his wife, Marilyn, and their three children. Although he only wanted temporary custody, Jeannie lived with the Rigglers for four years. Marilyn became her teacher, and testing by the case study team resumed during this time. Based on the huge improvements that Butler described while she had custody of Jeannie, the move into Riggler's home caused severe regression in her behavior. It's my assumption that Butler was lying about the progress Jeannie made to make herself look better, but we don't know that for sure. I think it's somewhat safe to say because obviously this Butler lady was pretty much just another piece of shit. Kind of a bitch. Kind of a bitch. So um, I'm going to say that she was bullshitting. Yeah. The whole story was already famous when she came on the scene, right? She was her teacher. So she was one of the original people at the children's hospital that was placed on the team to take care of Jeannie so but I think once she saw how much attention it was getting she was like oh this is my moment my guess is that since she didn't allow the team in there to take tests or anything like that she probably wasn't doing so well after a few months living with the regulars Jeannie began listening and acknowledging speech even if it wasn't directed at her she was also taught by Marilyn how to control her anger and frustration and her self-harming behaviors almost completely ceased Jeannie's social skills also improved significantly, so much so she was able to begin attending nursery school and eventually elementary school for mentally disabled children. Her speech also improved, but she still struggled with expressing a good portion of her feelings. She created a large number of nonverbal gestures to help communicate and would often draw things she could not explain in words. So she went to an elementary school then? Yeah, she, I mean, she attended school not like, I mean, they didn't just throw her in like the third grade with all kinds of different children. It was, I mean, specifically for her needs, but... Other kids who had been kept in a room for 13 years? Gotcha. In 1975, Jeannie turned 18, and the Rigglers agreed to let Irene regain custody of her. Although the Rigglers assisted in her care, Irene found many of Jeannie's behaviors distressing, and after a few months, quietly contacted the state of California to place Jeannie into foster care. Wait, 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 what, what? Her mother said, oh, yeah, I can take care of her, and then went, oh, shit, no, I don't want to do this. And she went to put her into foster care and just instead of just giving her back to the Rigglers? Mm -hmm. That's kind of cold-blooded. Yeah, I'm back to fuck that bitch. I don't like her anymore. And she was also very good friends with Jean Butler at this time, and they had talked since Jean was taking care of Jeannie, and Butler basically told her that the whole case study team was horrible and taxing and just doing more harm to Jeannie than good, so... I'm just going to say it, unpopular opinion, but maybe Clark could have taken Irene out with him. (laughs) The first foster home she was placed in physically abused her, causing a massive regression in every aspect of Jeannie's behavior. She was then transferred to and from multiple foster homes, causing even more damage as she believed she was responsible for her constant moving. 
1977, Irene completely halted all testing on Jeannie by her team due to false rumors Butler had planted in Irene's head over the course of many years. So every time she gets out of a foster home, Irene gets control of her again, or what? I think she, at this point, had severed her rights. So she technically, I mean, she was still, like, able to act as her mother, but she was not her legal guardian. There was someone from the hospital that was Jeannie's legal guardian, and during this period, he was, like, MIA. So no one could actually have him approve or give any advice on her care. And also during this time, Irene actually sued the case study team, and so they had to completely cut off all contact with Jeannie. So all of these people that had actually formed friendships with the child and, like, actually cared for her were completely barred from ever speaking to her again. How does everything just line up so fucking wrong? Between 1978 and 1990, Jeannie was moved to and from at least four different foster homes and institutions where she was physically abused. Unfortunately, we don't really know what happened to Jeannie after this point. Once her mother cut off all contact with her case study team, Jeannie seemingly disappeared from the public eye, and no one would say where she was or how she was doing. Her mother Irene died in 2003, leaving her once again awarded the state. Multiple reporters and even a private investigator have attempted to get in contact with her, but have been mostly unsuccessful. The researchers who were a part of her case study team and those who cared for her at the hospital have attempted to make contact, but are never able or allowed to speak to her. John Wiley passed away in 2011 from diabetes, although he had only visited Irene and Jeannie once in the 80s. Unfortunately, Jeannie was failed by not only her family, but by the state and those who entrusted to care for her. Wherever she is, she'll be turning 64 years old in August. What a rough life. Damn. So, where do we think she is now? More than likely, she's in an institution somewhere in California, hopefully being semi-taken care of. Nobody knows her name, so there's no way to know. It's Susan. We know her name. Well, but if she's in an institution, nobody knows she's there, right? Like... She just yeah, showed up I there mean, one day with no identification. Can she tell people her name? Yeah, she knows her name. She can speak somewhat. It's just crazy that some, like, she fall off the face of the earth and no one knows where she's at. I mean, it's mostly, I'm sure it's difficult to find her and also the people that are like actively looking for her are not allowed to speak to her. So I think Irene killed her. Might make it a little bit hard to find someone. Yeah, and I think more than likely she because she has been not taken care of and probably regressed so much and just is pretty much back to functioning how she was when they first found her. I'm sure the state of California doesn't want anyone finding her. Hmm. That's an interesting theory. The California mob has covered up her location. She has gone into the opposite of witness relocation. This is just, we don't want you to be found relocation. Victim relocation. Yeah. Is that going to do it for us this week, Katie? Yeah, that is all. All right, guys, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify, and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. You can head over there for a full episode list to send us ideas for episodes you want to hear, or just to get your free sticker from our merch store by entering the code BINGOBANGO at checkout. We'll ship it out to you. You can walk out to your mailbox, get your sticker, and notice every time you walk out to your mailbox, It's silent. Your neighbors never talk.
you should look into that. <laughs> All right, guys. Talk to you next week. We're not going to do Eva's birthday shout out? Oh, yeah. Happy birthday, Eva! It's our number four fans. Actually, no, Eva's probably pretty up there. It's my sister's birthday, so if any of you out there know my sister, March 2nd is her birth. Remember that. And what I want you really to do is send thank you to our number one fan, Nancy. Number one Because fan she did all the hard work when my sister was born. All my sister had to do was pop out and cry so and live the easy life so thank my mom if you like eva <laughs> say thanks to the one that that got her out and you could thank nancy even if you don't like eva because she's responsible for rory too yeah but happy yeah. birthday eva happy rory birthday, turned this eva. into some horrible thing about <laughs> how he doesn't whatever happy birthday eva happy birthday and thank you wendy for recommending the episode and thank you wendy for recommending the episode. Wendy. Did I say Wendy? No, I just couldn't remember how the song goes. It says, it's from Breaking Bad, you know? All right, We're guys. not comparing. Talk to you later. <laughs> Adios, motherfucker. See ya. You just sit there and eat apples angrily. <laughs> <laughs>